Hey everyone, and welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 215. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of What If Episode 1. What if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? Directed by Brian Andrews, written by AC Bradley, who is the head writer for the series. But before we get into all the spoilery details of this first episode of What If, it's time for that regular reminder of the exclusive podcast we have available over at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. That's S-E-A-N-G-E-R-B-E-R. Those exclusives include Patreon credit scenes, supplemental podcasts that go along with these main episodes that we do. So the Patreon credit scene for episode 215 is going to feature our thoughts on the latest trailer for Venom Let There Be Carnage, as well as the movie shifting its release date. And what that might mean for something like Spider-Man No Way Home, a Marvel Studios movie that's going to be released by Sony Pictures, the same studio, of course, that's releasing Venom Let There Be Carnage. So we'll talk about that on the Patreon credit scene, which you can access at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber, or just hit the link in our show notes. And then make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you over on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much to everyone who's already taken the time to do so. And now on with our show. How you doing, Paul Herman? I am doing very, very, very well. It's a uh, smoky here in Washington state and um, the sun looks blood red sometimes. It's kind of weird and it's a. Uh, Strange times in August now. It seems like the last three August uh, summers, whatever, it's uh, been very smoky. Mm. It's just strange. I'm not used to smog in, in my mornings. So anyway, but other than that, doing great, man. We've got I'm, – I'm excited for Shang-Chi. we got What If going on, and I'm just – I can't wait to get into What If. I'll be honest. I'm like – I'm stoked. This I I knew I'd be fu- it'd be fun to talk about, but I didn't realize I'd be this excited to talk about What If, to be quite honest. So I'm, I'm excited to get into it today. I'm very excited to talk about this show. It's been a week since I watched the the first few episodes when I got the screeners, and I've just been dying to talk about this show. And I mean, of mm-hmm. course, I got to limit myself to just one episode this week. Of course, I'm not going to spoil what happens the next two weeks, but I had so much fun watching all of the the episodes that I've seen so far, including this one. Uh, episode one, what if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? And I loved this episode so much that when I was watching it, I had kind of a busy morning slash day. I was like, well, I'm going to try and squeeze in one of these episodes just so I can watch one before I, I go about my my day last week. And then I immediately like started shifting and moving, texting people and pushing plans back for the day because I was like, I need to watch these next two episodes <laughs> because that was how much I loved this one. Uh, what if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? And this is the one I think we've, I mean, well, of course, we've known about this one for the longest. Like when What If was officially announced, I mean, it was reported several months, I think originally by Slash Film, several months before it was announced officially by Marvel Studios and Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige at San Diego Comic Con in 2019. But as soon as that announcement came out, started talking about Captain Carter as one of the an example of the ideas that they would be exploring and what if so we've known about it since then and so I think it was always just destined to be the very first episode and the one that we've seen the most little pieces of and images from uh, in the marketing 
And I think the hype around this episode, the anticipation has always been really strong because people just love Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter in the MCU. Mm -hmm. You and I can go back. It's been 10 years since we were talking <gasps> about Captain America, the first Avenger. And going back to that spoiler review, which was on Modern Myth Media, don't try and scroll back 10 years in this feed. It doesn't go back that far. But <laughs> when we were talking about it then, I remember we were all talking about how amazing, of course, the overall movie that we loved, but Haley Atwell mm -hmm. as Peggy Carter. And I remember all of us being bummed because of the way that movie ends, right? Spoiler alert, Steve goes in the ice and he says, I had a date and you think you're never going to see Peggy Carter again. Well, thankfully, uh, you know, Marvel caught wind of the not that they I think they probably figured it out themselves as they were watching Haley Atwell uh, bring this character to life on set, that there was something special here. And so the character came back in several places over the years. And there's always just been such love for this character. But now to see her go from hero to superhero, I mean, she was always a superhero, but now a costume a full fledged costume superhero. This is something a what if scenario that uh, was, I mean, one of the most automatic choices and one of the best choices to explore just within the canon of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so with all that hype, all that anticipation and all that love for that character going into this, it sets a, a pretty high bar for this episode to live up to. And, and for me, it, it totally met slash cleared, exceeded that bar totally. I loved this episode so, so much. It was everything I would have wanted out of a Captain Carter story. I don't really think this is the end of the Captain Carter story at all, even this season of What If, um, because I mean, trailers would suggest that it's not. But this episode, I had an absolute blast watching it. I mean, and I love, of course, I, I also have to give a quick shout out to Jeffrey Wright as the watcher, who's so mm. good in this. His voice uh, is just perfect for it. But even the way they they set all this up with you know one choice that changes everything, um, and then the the action in this episode, the animation, because I know that was a part that maybe we weren't as convinced of and needed to see more of. I loved the animation in this. It made the action look really fluid. I thought the performances mm -hmm. shined through with the voice acting as well as the animation capturing that. I just I, I love this so much. This is as much fun as I've had, maybe the most fun I've had with a first episode of a Marvel Studios Disney Plus series, live action or animated. I, for one thing, you're absolutely right. I was not anticipating to enjoy it on the level of the regular live action series. And that's a high bar. The live action series have been very, very good. And they've been very creative in their storytelling. Yeah. I mean, and I go think back to that, what we just said several weeks ago about the first episode of Loki and how much we loved that. Yeah. And, and again, like I go back to my favorite, probably is still just because I love those characters, the, the Falcon Winter Soldier. But I think creatively, it's it's not my favorite, but it's, it's my, overall my favorite. But at the same time, the way this episode is written is is formatted exactly like the old comic books are. Now, the reason why I love the way that those format the the way those old formats are for those comic books is that they're all one and done, right? There's no ongoing like multiple. Every once in a while, you have like a multiple uh, comic book storyline, but for the most part. All those comic books were, were very condensed into 20 plus pages, like no more than probably 24, 25 pages. And that's a lot of content to tell us or not a lot, not a lot of content to, to tell these very complex kind of like origin redirecting stories like what if that like we got in this episode. And what I love about this this show so much, Sean, is that 
it emulates exactly what the format of the original comic was. It's not just a, it, it seems like an obvious thing, but they get it down to the narration of the watcher the entire time. Mm-hmm. They get it down to the fact that they're condensing a huge storyline. So they're condensing basically what, a almost two hour movie in first Avenger yeah. into less than 30 minutes. And they have to do it in a way that is very like quick, concise and fun and ex- explain everything. And it's a lot to do. And they do, they cram a lot in these 30 minutes, just like the comic books do. And they give you all these fun, different directions. I was not anticipating that much like crammed in to that 30 minutes. I thought I'd be a little bit more, you know, a little more focused on just captain Carter again, which I loved. And we'll get into that obviously in a second, but overall I was blown away. It emulated the, the comic. I thought beautifully, like it, it was a true like adaptation of the series. Right. I was blown away how good it was. And i I grew up on what if stories. I, I for whatever reason, I just loved them. I loved them. And I grew up mainly on the nineties series that they re- they started uh, putting out. I think 89 was when it first came out. And they started kind of doing more of the updated like 80s and 90s stories. And it got a little crazy at the end. And and they have and what if hasn't really been the same, I don't think, since it's it, they've done a lot of one shots, but that 90s series has some great, great stories in there. I think we even talked about uh what was it? What if Wolverine oh, was what killed if, by the uh, Hulk? The, from the 90s one, it's what if the because there was the original one from I think like original the 70s one, yeah. series was what if Wolverine killed the Hulk, but the, the one Hulk, I had yeah. with the, the foil cover of the Adamantium yep. skeleton was what if yep. Hulk had killed the Wolverine. Yeah, which yeah, and that by the way, the art of that book is terrible. But anyway, but the covers not amazing. the cover. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, the covers incredible. That's, that's straight nineties. If, if, yep. if it's got foil on it, it's from the nineties. Yeah, and so there's lots of great. There's lots of fun stories like that that you could just dive into and just have fun and and it, it emulates exactly what the show is. So if you like this stuff, this stuff, honestly, the comic books are so. Honestly, the mo- a lot of them are pretty well written and written by a lot of great writers that I didn't even realize. Like Kurt Busiek wrote a ton of them. One of my favorites is uh, what if Wolver- or, or, what if Spider-Man kept his extra arms back in the uh, mm-hmm. issue Amazing Spider-Man 100. He had those extra appendages where Morbius first showed up. And uh, and then what if it's they, they basically say, well, what if Spider-Man couldn't get rid of his arms? He had to keep them. And he, so basically he, he has like his costume with all these different arms. It's, it's amazing. It's so it's so much fun. So uh I, stuff like that is so much fun, and we're, you're going to get a lot of these kinds of episodes, too, in the series that we've already kind of gotten hints at. So for outright, we'll get into why we loved it, but I, I love this. I loved everything about this episode. I, I have nothing. I don't really have a bad thing to say, so I, I loved it. No, no notes. No notes. I, I think yeah. that with the whole concept of this, and I think that there's I, I don't think this will be quite the same as the what if comics in that it's complete anthology. One episode has nothing to do with the others. I, I think this yeah, is the I MCU and there's definitely some interconnectivity at work here um, that we'll explore as the season goes on. But what they are doing a great job of is as far as the concept of what if is the whole anything goes. But I like the way they balance that. So there's mm-hmm. telling a story like this where. Uh, where Peggy Carter, of course, gets to be Captain Carter and and go on this adventure as a full-fledged superhero. And so they're changing certain things within the timeline. But at the same time, there is there are these familiar things, right? So the timeline doesn't completely diverge in a direction where nothing is familiar. Certain things come back, certain ideas, even quotes mm-hmm. that sound a little similar to oh, what was in the MCU, and so maybe good. they're said by a different person, or maybe they're said by the same person, but in a different setting. 
and the way they sprinkle all that in of what you know about the MCU while also providing a completely new context is one of the just add it to the list of amazing balancing acts that the MCU has done over the years. Uh, but it was a huge part of the fun of this episode. So let's get into it and, and talk about it. So we first open with the watcher mm. kind of recapping the story that we know. Um, also, I guess one more thing to to just note, even though we we talked about it in the Loki spoiler reviews, this stuff counts now, right? Because we have mm. branched timelines. I mean, what you have with Peggy Carter here with the choice she makes to stay in the room, which we'll talk about in a moment, that's a Nexus event where she probably would have been pruned had the TVA that we knew from the sacred timeline still been around, at least in my head canon, that's where it's at right now. I don't really know. Um, but all this stuff counts somewhere in the multiverse, even if it's not the prime MCU timeline that we are used to from all the movies and the Disney Plus series so far. But we get the recap of what we what we knew to be true We with Steve Rogers becoming Captain America. But in this timeline, it's one choice that changes everything. And I love how simple it was when Dr. Erskine asks uh, Agent Carter if she would be more comfortable up in the booth. She just decides to she just says, no, I think I'll stay. And she just stays mm. in the room. And that sets off this entire chain of events because Heinz Kruger is still there for his attack, but she spots it not in time to prevent the whole thing. Uh, we immediately see Colonel Phillips being shot and killed. That was Tommy Lee Jones character in Captain America, the first Avenger. Steve is also shot and wounded. Uh, Howard Stark says it's now or never because everything's exploding. And so there it's this is their one chance to make a super soldier. And Peggy's the only one against the uh, objections of Colonel Flynn, who is Agent Flynn, as we knew him, voiced by Bradley Whitford, who was in the Agent Carter one shot that was attached to Iron Man 3, which you can find in the extras of Iron Man 3 on Disney Plus. Uh, against his objections, Peggy steps into the little super soldier chamber and Howard pushes buttons because that's what he's there to do. And Peggy Carter becomes the world's first super soldier. And the whole way they, they set this up, I, I thought was brilliant. I, I love kind of the whole theme of it and what the choice was be in the room because that's the recurring thing that gets brought up. Whitford, uh, not Bradley Whitford, his character, Colonel Flynn, says multiple times in the episode, you're lucky to be in the room. And that whole concept of, of somebody who is, especially Peggy Carter as a woman, someone who is overlooked, someone who is silenced uh, by, or at least people, others attempting to silence her all the time or ignore her or whatever it is that it's a choice for her to be there and be present um, and, and and insist that she has value and, and that she belongs in the room, uh, that that's the choice that changes everything I absolutely love. And, and at the same time, I like how her becoming Captain Carter, I thought was very grounded in the time, mm -hmm. which is sad to say, but yeah, that's the truth. Like there's no, I was wondering how she would end up becoming Captain Carter because I, I didn't really think that it would be a situation where, she would be chosen to be a super soldier. Like this is the 1940s. I highly doubt that anybody would at that time, well, not anybody, but people at that time, especially a room full of men, that they would choose a woman to become the first super soldier. And it wasn't their choice. It was hers. Um, of course, Howard uh, went through with it as well. Um, but it really was Peggy Carter completely driving the story, even against uh, the objections of a dope like, uh, like Flynn, I, I thought the whole way this thing started and kicked off was great. Yeah, I thought that this was a very appropriate thing because 
uh, I, I like because you're playing out the fact of something that we knew it was going to happen anyway, right? With with the with the real timeline, the real timeline with Peggy and Steve, kind of you know they're growing affection for each other. So if you know that the original everything leading up to that is almost the same, then you know that that, that car ride over, right. they're kind of already kind of connecting. So there that the fact that that this Peggy makes that change that want to be closer to Steve makes a lot of sense. And I like that. So it makes sense to where she's there and everyone else is at, you know, out of the way and they have to do it right then. It felt very natural and like you said, grounded and made sense. And then even afterwards where, you know, they didn't want to, you know, have a woman on the front lines and, and all that. So, and the fact that she, they can, the whole thing is, is perfectly set up to where it drives her even further to use what she has. Cause she says like, you know, I'm a, I don't want to be a pin cushion. And she, and what I love is the difference between, I think, uh, Peggy and with Steve is Steve is, will do whatever it takes for himself to like, to be, to do, to do the right thing for his country and for him and for what he thinks is helping people. And where Peggy she has more experience. And that was one thing I, I and we'll get into that in a second too, but she's a soldier. Like she's already been mm-hmm. in, the, in this a lot longer than Steve. So she kind of knows what she needs, what needs to be done. It can be more aggressive. Whereas Steve's a little bit more, I don't want to say a follower at this point, but he's just more along the, he's more apt to go along with what, what people want him to do because he's trying to help whatever he can to do, you know, whatever he can do. Whereas Peggy is already know, already knows kind of like what to do and how to get it done. So I like the idea that she, when they kind of uh, bring up that idea of what they could do for her, he's like, no, I won't do that. You know, they won't do that to me. Will they? So she already kind of has an idea of like, no, I won't do this. I know you already got the idea of that. You know where she's going to go and how she's going to get out of it. So that's a great point because yeah, that's a great point. Cause even if you go back to the first Avenger, she was already a leader when Steve Mm -hmm. was just going through basic training, right? Like she's the one addressing these guys as they're falling in line and and punching Gilmore Hodge in the face in one of the better moments of the Captain America, the first Avenger. But yeah, like that's part of why I think she was more prepared to to step up in this moment is of course who she is as Peggy Carter, who we know and love, but also that, yeah, she, her leadership qualities, I think were more established and more developed than Steve's, which really suits how some things just move faster in the story, which really helps when you have a 30 minute episode instead of a two hour film. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Peggy is initially sidelined, kind of like Steve was, although not the same. I love that Steve makes the joke about USO tours and stuff like that. Uh, I thought that was awesome because, of course, she doesn't get that, although a costume was made by Howard Stark, uh, assuming that maybe USO tours would be an option. But Peggy doesn't have to sell war bonds. Um, I like that they kind of tease, of course, the ending of this uh, of the of the episode, similar to the first Avenger talking about dancing, setting up that date that uh, is not going to happen, at least not until after Avengers Endgame, although who knows what happens in this timeline. Um, meanwhile, we see Johann Schmidt getting the Tesseract in Norway, and they're playing the scene, very similar dialogue to what we saw in the first Avenger, except the voice is not Hugo Weaving, it's Ross Marquand, but that is still a, uh, that, that's still an MCU voice, because remember, Ross Marquand was the mm-hmm. voice of the Red Skull or Stonekeeper on Vormir in Infinity War and Endgame. And I guess because we're too. talking about Steve, um, have to give some credit to Josh Keaton, who voiced Steve Rogers in this. It's not Chris Evans. I thought Josh Keaton did a really great job, so much so that I, I didn't find myself I didn't find myself hearing the lack of Chris Evans in this. Like it didn't really bother me a- at all. Um, and and I was wondering if it might because you're hearing MCU voices all over the place with Haley Atwell. Uh, Dominic Cooper, who 
we need more of Dominic Cooper's young Howard Stark. Like he is yeah. so much fun in this, and he always was in uh, in the MCU or in, and also MCU adjacent with the Agent Carter television series. Uh, but he was great. But also, yes, Josh Keaton did a terrific job uh, stepping in as uh, Steve Rogers in this and, and providing that voice. Um, but uh, meanwhile, they set up kind of the the plot of this with, the, of course, the Tesseract. There's also some other uh, cool moments here that I liked, like when Peggy was hitting the heavy bag and, and knocking it off the chain and into the wall, kind of like Steve. But then they add to it that she was throwing those weights into the wall, which is some shield throwing practice, oh. not that she knows that yet. Um, and wishing it was Hitler's head. Uh, I thought that was awesome. Um, but yeah, teasing up the the date and like maybe you haven't found the right partner, um, which I don't know if... That line almost makes it sound like it's the first time they talk about the right partner, but I would assume they did in the car ride over mm-hmm. before the super soldier experiment, because that would have happened before she made the choice to stay in the room and it diverged. But maybe it's not the only variance and I should shut up about it. But anyway, um, they they set up that they need to go get the Tesseract. And I, I love that Flynn is not that I, I love it because he's a cool character. I well, he's a. He's a good antagonist in the sense that he's the kind of the perfect foil for Agent Carter or Captain Carter in this and that being the guy who's just such a misogynistic dope that he can't see what's obvious. And, and also at the same time, he's a complete moron when he's point when Howard and Peggy are both describing the Tesseract and how incredibly valuable it is and, and how devastating it would be to let Hydra actually carry through with their plans with it. And he just, you know, is not worried about this battery um, and keeps and, and meanwhile just wants to keep telling Peggy and insulting her, belittling her, saying how she's lucky to be in the room. But she's not lucky to be in the room. She's in the room because she chose to be, which is part of what makes, I, I think, this story so, so moving and, and so powerful is this is all about Peggy's choice and her agency through all of this. Um, and it's uh, her making the heroic choice each and every time throughout these episodes but yeah, just the initial uh, reaction to Peggy becoming the world's first super soldier is, or you know, aside from Johann Schmidt as a failed experiment. But all of that tracks, uh, you know, and all that feels very grounded. And it really just sets up the the amazing heroic journey that she's about to go on. So this, all of this initial setup was still working really well for me. Yeah, you brought up the point about her throwing the weights. That was a great touch, and I, I think what. I was very impressed how the story, this whole episode was written because like you said, you're setting up the shield throws and you're also showing how strong she is and what, and how aggressive she is. I love the nod to the first Avenger or I'm not sorry for Avenger uh, Avengers, excuse me, mm-hmm. where she's, you know, she's hitting the, the punching bag yep. and then she kicks it off. You know, again, little touches like that, little Easter eggs like that, but it also set up the fact that she's a lot more aggressive than Steve. And, 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 and again, not in a bad way. She's just a lot more just kind of sure of herself at that point, right off the bat. She's just, you know, she has, she's angry. She's got, you know, she has a lot of, you know, she wants to find something and, and punish them and, and, and use these things for good. And I just love the, the, the power and the aggression that she has. It feels more than Steve ever did. And they definitely use that. I think that's a theme throughout, um, which I'll get to that in a, a few minutes here in a second, but it's definitely a theme that I really, really enjoyed. And I think that's one of the things that people really liked about this character is that this character is very driven. And I think people gravitate towards that. And I think Peggy's always been that way. But when you put the super soldier serum into this person and you see her, it, again, what is, your, uh, what is, uh, I forgot what his name is, uh, the guy who created the serum. Yeah, oh my Dr. Gosh, Erskine. 
Erskine. Erskine says it enhances everything about the person, right? So it enhances, you know, a good man becomes a great man, you know, mm-hmm. and like, you know, everything, all that, whatever. So with Peggy, she's a great, you know, she's a great person, great woman. And, you know, she's all that, all that passion, all that, all that drive becomes even greater in her. So you think that it comes out even more so in these scenes that we see, especially with the scene with her and Steve were uh, working out together. So I, I thought that was a great setup. Like you said, everything was set up beautifully through these, just a little, these little nods and little things they, they put in is really, really uh, honestly impressive. I thought that, like, the way they, they were able to push the plot and everything was really, really well done. It was. And then when you talk about the plot accelerating, Mm -hmm. the first mission for Captain Carter is the end of the movie for Captain America and Captain America, the first Avenger. Like the whole movie is getting the Tesseract and Captain America, the first Avenger. Captain Carter gets it right away in Mm -hmm. just such an incredible action scene. And this is where the animation really shined for me was uh, at least in part was this sequence where she goes in and gets the Tesseract. The shield offense and defense was as great and as much fun as it's ever been. Like it, her, Watching her wield the shield and between the throws, the, the shield strikes, everything that she was doing. I mean, the way, of course, opening it up with just launching that truck like end over end with the shield uh, was incredible. Everything that she was doing in there was just, uh, I was just awestruck watching it. It was just, it was cool comic book superhero stuff with Captain Carter. And her reaction to it is what really enhanced it. Like her initial reaction after she flips that truck uh, over her saying, that was brilliant. Let's give it another go. And the way she's reacting and like registering like her powers was so much fun. And, And it was all just, and it all just rang very true that like, you know, of course she's, uh, she's a, a hero and, and always has been, but at the same time, like it's that reaction of like, holy crap, this is what I can do. Um, it was there, there was some, it was funny and, and it was charming, but also I think what made it work so well was, was the truth that's there. And then, uh, at the same time though, as funny and charming as it all was, you saw that Peggy Carter could be straight up brutal. Like when the big dude comes mm-hmm. up, talking about, you know, uh, a a fragile woman being sent, and she says fragile, and then she just breaks his (laughs) damn knee and then uh, just destroys that guy in short order. Um, And and she didn't have to take him down quite that hard, but, you know, he he had it coming. Uh, But that was uh, amazing. And then, like, everything that ended, like, this is the part where when I was watching it, uh, it's certainly a moment where I I think of you and and how excited you're going to be because... We go back 10 years and, you know, shield throws, shield offense. Use of the shield is very, very important. Well, I think yes. for everyone, but particularly for you, Paul. And uh, yes. I, I think you got more shield throws and just overall shield offense in like 15 seconds in, in one particular run <laughs> uh, within this. Because there, there is one good run there of like 15 seconds where like yeah. it just cuts to these different shots of the shield hitting someone. And there's more there than all of Captain America, the first Avengers. So I'm sure you were stoked. Yeah, that was, it was great. I, the one thing I will say about the animation, and I'm curious what you think. And I I don't know if it's because of the time it takes place, Sean, but I felt very, the animation in general gave me a a lot of uh, Fletcher or Fleischer uh, Superman Mm. animation vibes. And 
I, again, I don't know if it's because it's the same era because the, the Fleischer uh, Superman cartoons were all in that World War II era. But it just it felt very – it had that kind of – obviously, it's anim, it, it was computer animation. And it actually reminds me also a lot of um, the Star Wars Resistance animated show. There's a lot of similar uh, animation vibes there. I'm not sure if it's the same studio or, or what. But either way, I, I definitely felt that Star Wars Resistance, like modern stuff, but I also felt very Fleischer, like, or, you know, all that old school kind of fl- the way it kind of flows or what, a little mm-hmm. bit. I don't know. I, maybe it's just the era. I, I don't know. But it definitely, when, when she kind of started, when she came Captain Carter, you know, fully in costume with the shield, it definitely gave me that vibe. I'm like, wow, this, it, it definitely kicked up even more in a high gear for me. I know some people have a problem with the animation and I think it's, it's definitely, uh, something to get used to, but I had, as the episode went on, I got more and more used to it. And I think as the series goes on, if you're kind of on the fence a little bit, I think you'll get used to it and you'll be fine. A lot of people had problems with the animation with, uh, you know, the clone wars. Right. And, and definitely had some rough starts at the very beginning, mm-hmm. but still I'll, even then it was still like they kind of found their way, but it was still solid then. And then eventually once they kind of got more used to, you know, doing the animation, it became just amazing and became better and better and better. Every episode it seemed like, so I feel like it's going to be the same thing with this. It's already pretty good, I think, but if you just keep with it, I think you're going to get used to it. And also it'll get even better and it'll be awesome. But this whole part is just so beautifully done. And I want to point a couple of things out. Uh, the shield throws, yes, are incredible. And the way that she is so competent with the shield is mm-hmm. just it's, it's magnificent. And I thought about this. I rewatched it yesterday with some buddies. And when she does the first car wreck or, you know, where she gets in front of the car and she goes, that's brilliant. It, it occurred to me. I'm like, well, no wonder she's so aggressive and is so it just is so adequate with everything. Think about this. I brought up the fact that she's a leader and she's already been in the system before Steve. Well, mm-hmm. she's also a better fighter than Steve at, the, at that point because right. she's been in the military forever. So, she, of course, she can go out and just destroy everybody really quick because she knows how to fight. And so, I mean, I was thinking, I'm like, man, like at this point, yeah, she, she if her and Steve, like if Captain Carter and, and regular uh, Captain America, you know, duked it out for whatever reason, she'd probably kick his, the crap out of him. Cause she's a better fighter at that point. So, uh, I was like, man, like this actually makes a lot of sense. The fact that she's destroying everything and how good she is about everything. So it worked. And also I love the Easter egg, uh, where, when she does break the guy's kneecap and it it has like an up close of him going, Oh, it's a super old school Disney. Yeah, it is. Oh God. I thought that was, that was yeah. His reaction when he gets punched in the gut that, Ooh, (laughs) (laughs) it's very, uh, Yes, that's very Disney villain. Just you know, it was perfect. Got what he deserved. I thought that whole it was beautifully choreographed, and I love seeing Haley Atwell just get out there. And, and she was she's been great. I love the character Peggy uh, Peggy Carter, and just mm. and Captain Carter is like, oh, man, it's awesome. But yeah, this this was a great great moment. I thought it was very very cool to see her be super just efficient. And it makes sense again because she's she's a great she's as a soldier she's been in the military for a while so she knows what she's doing. Yeah, no, she she totally does, and and it was great watching this sequence. As far as the animation goes, I guess for now I can only put it in that like beauty is in the eye of the beholder category. Like I love the animation, and I like that it has elements that are familiar. I, I think that's a, a good call out with some of the the Fleischer Superman that 
that makes sense for me. I wasn't necessarily thinking about that as I was watching it, but um, upon mention of that, I, I think that tracks. Uh, but it has, I, I like that the show has its own unique look. Like I can't really point to something that, look. not that I've seen everything that's out there in animation, so maybe there is something that they've ripped off. I don't know, but there's nothing that I've seen that looks quite like this. There are bits of this that feel a little bit familiar, even if I can't exactly identify where maybe it's coming from. So there's something about this that feels kind of uh, like a blend of classic with new. And and I like that it doesn't look like straight 3D modeling CG yeah. animation. I, I know that's, of course, very popular to do. We, we see that in Star Wars, like Clone Wars, The Bad Batch. And I'm not knocking that. I don't have an issue with it. But I like that Marvel Studios, this is their first animated series, and it just feels very appropriate to me that it would have its own unique look. This is what Marvel Studios animation looks like. Not to say that if they do, in, or not if, when they do other animated series that they all have to look like this. They don't. They can all have their own unique look. There's something about this that achieves it. There's a lot of this that looks almost like it's hand-drawn, and it has yes. some of that classic, you know, 2D animation look and feel. And yet there is a sense of depth to it. Like the characters really do stand out amongst, uh, you know, the against the background that they're a part of and they don't just blend right into it. Um, so it gives that depth of vision uh, within there, uh, within, of course, the screen. Like so I, I really enjoyed that aspect of the animation. And, and I I don't know enough about the technical stuff of animation to say this is what they're doing and, and here's why it's awesome. I just know that the overall effect I really enjoyed in this first episode and in uh, subsequent episodes that I've had a chance to see. Uh, I really like the look of the show. And I also like that in this scene, I think what it also really illustrates is that you have with Marvel Studios stepping into animation, they're also taking advantage of animation in the right way in that. Mm. The action that you see in this, yes, it's, it's Peggy Carter being a more experienced fighter and having more military experience at this point in her career compared to Steve when he became Captain America. All of that's very true, but there's also the medium. And in animation, the action is going to be more heightened, and it should be because you don't necessarily have to obey the same laws of physics. And even in big Marvel movies where you have so much CG and you have wires and you have all these things to help the actors and stunt performers accomplish things that human beings can't actually do. Animation gives you even more that you can do and, and even more that the heroes can be capable of and the villains as well, action wise. And you should just go ahead and do that and take advantage of the medium. And I think they did that with this action sequence, which in which, of course, Captain Carter shined, but also it delivered the type of heightened action uh, that you should have in an animated series and really just be all big and splash pagey about it. Uh, like, you know, you're bringing a comic book to life. Like you're just making, you're taking these huge, these amazing panels and you're just making them move. Mm -hmm. And I felt like they did a, a really great job of that. And then um, the reaction to this Peggy handing over the Tesseract to Howard Stark, um, this whole setup for the Hydra stomper, I'm all about it. Like you, because you would think what I, I don't know why I didn't really think of this ahead of time, but you would need something to power the Hydra stomper. Remember, the, the only reason Iron Man's armor worked in that first movie is because Tony invented the mini arc reactor that didn't actually exist. There was nothing if there was nothing in, you know, 
2008, roughly, that could power the Mark I armor, then obviously there's nothing in the 1940s that's going to power the Hydra Stomper except for the Tesseract. And even though it's the Space Stone, we also know that the Tesseract has uh, energy properties, uh, renewable energy properties. So that certainly would allow it to power something like the Hydra Stomper. So I just love that inclusion of it, of here's one of the applications of the Tesseract. Here's how we're going to make the Hydra Stomper or like the new or in this timeline, original Iron Man armor. This is how we're going to power it. And it totally makes sense. And so I, I just love the way they were able to kind of repurpose the Tesseract in uh, in that way, which also from a plotting perspective makes it make sense that they got the Tesseract very early. So all of that, I, I think, was really, really clever and really just efficient within the storytelling, which isn't necessarily, um, you know, the, the most uh, isn't necessarily the most artistic praise for storytelling. But at the same time, it's true. Like storytelling needs to be efficient, especially mm -hmm. in a 30 minute episode where you're trying to tell more of a complete story, even though I do think there's interconnectivity. These episodes do have to be more complete on their own than the live action series Absolutely. that we've seen. And so efficiency is part of it as long as uh, as long as it rings true, as long as it makes sense uh, and it's fun. And, and it certainly they were able to accomplish that with so many of the choices that they made in this episode. And it was uh, it was really impressive. Um, and then uh, as far as the the action sequences that we got here uh, now, uh, it's going to be Captain Carter who goes to rescue Bucky and the Howling Commandos, the 107th. Uh, Steve, of course, shows up in, when we see the debut of the Hydra Stomper. But that mission to go rescue the 107th, I mean, Peggy running alongside uh, the motorcycle <laughs> uh, was awesome. And then, uh, like, the way she rode the motorcycle and, like, launched it and then, like, kicked it into the tower was just such a cool action beat. And then we get some uh, familiar visuals, like, of course... Uh, we get Neil McDonough back as as Dum Dum Duggan was one of the Howling Commandos, and Sebastian Stan is there as the voice of Bucky, asking if Captain Carter is the Queen of England, uh, which definitely seems like a 1940s dopey Bucky thing for him to say. Um, but then we get a shot in there that feels like it, it's a different scene. But when I talk about these familiar touches that are, are repurposed and kind of reformatted, there's a shot in Captain America: The First Avenger of like Cap and the Howling Commandos busting through a door with Cap at the center with the shield and everybody's firing their guns. Well, we get that in the 107th breakout here where it's Captain Carter who's the one leading in the center with the shield bursting through the door and Bucky and the Howling Commandos are, are right there uh, beside her, everybody firing their guns to try and shoot their way out. I, I just, I, I totally flipped for that. It's just a very familiar touch of the MCU but seen in a completely new way. And I just I was not getting tired of that at all in this episode and and also in other episodes like it's just um, it's not the thing kind of thing I'm ever going to be bored with. Yeah, this this stuff with the whole of the, of the familiar, but also repurposing it throughout this whole episode is, was was brilliant. And I I loved when she saved him. And he was Are you the king, queen of England? And she just pulls it off. And he's just like, uh. yeah, <laughs> it's so perfect. I'm like, yeah. Man, like that's that's exactly what uh, it, it just it's it, everything felt very true to character. And yeah. I, I gotta tell you, the Hydra Stomper, that is by far, that's what I, I flipped out. I straight up flipped out at that part, Sean. Like, I was not expecting. Like I knew, like I I knew Stark was saying something. I just kind of was like, okay, whatever. I I didn't anticipate that. That is one hundred percent. What if? 
like comic book goodness right there where they they take something like that and they twist it and they make it like so steve is not captain america in that reality he's a hydra stomper which is a hybrid of iron man mm-hmm. you know it's like that is so brilliant I, that's exactly why i love the what if stories is that they take things like that and they twist it around and i remember i saw before i even saw the episode i, I stayed away from spoilers as everyone knows i was on a podcast uh, for this, uh, Spider-Man podcast I'm on and, uh, they were talking about Steve and like the, what if Iron Man? And I just kind of was like, well, or whatever. And I saw like a, a glimpse of it and I was like, I, I didn't know what they were even talking about. I'm like, okay. I just kind of ignored it. And then when I saw it, I went, Oh, 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 okay. And I, I, I loved it. Like, I think Hydra Stomper, I, the fact that the fact it's called Hydra Stomper is amazing. It's so <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this, this is this is exactly why I love What If. It, this kind of fun stuff. And I think if you like this, I think you're going to love the series completely cuz this is this is exactly what we're going to be getting, I think, for the most part in this uh in the series. Yeah, I, I think being able to see things that that track and kind of make sense and, and and I love that it's Howard Stark inventing it in the sense that Yeah. It's the kind of thing, I mean, you obviously the connection between Howard and, and Tony Stark as father and son, but you go back to Iron Man 2 and that video that Howard had made and, and the message that he had left behind for Tony of being limited by the technology of his time where, you know, this is what if Howard gets if Howard gets his hands on the Tesseract earlier, then this is what he might be able to do with it. I mean, he does eventually get his hands on the Tesseract in the main MCU timeline that we're familiar with, but it wasn't at the same time. It wasn't within the same context, so it didn't necessarily need. Um, and at that point, Steve Rogers was already Captain America and already had the Super Soldier. So the idea of needing to create something for Steve wasn't really there. So you have the technology of the time being altered with when Howard gets his hands on the Tesseract, as well as necessity being the mother of invention with uh, Steve needing a way to get into the fight. And Howard helps him with that. I, I just, I, I absolutely, I thought that was such a great way of not just having different things for the sake of what if, like, oh, it's what if, so we can do every, we can do anything. Yes, mm-hmm. you can, but within the context of the individual story you're telling, it still needs to make sense, and it still yeah. needs to come across as, as honest in some way and earned within the storytelling, and they found every time they went for that and having a different direction, like Cap, like Peggy as Captain Carter or Steve as the the Hydra Stomper, it totally made sense. And, and it just worked so well within the story, which is a huge part of what made it so much fun and, and made it so exciting. And so with the emergence of the Hydra Stomper and now Captain Carter, and Steve being the one to say, like, let's hear it for Captain Carter, similar to the way Bucky said, let's hear it for Captain America after the mm. rescue of the 107th, setting that up uh, was really great. And that leads into our montage, which we had... In Captain America, the first Avenger music montage slash, you know, slash action montage. And the uh, I think the highlight of that, well, a couple of things. I mean, I love that Steve painted Hello from Brooklyn on his uh, Hydra Stomper armor. I thought was great. Ugh. But yeah. the when I talk about the heightened action, that plane sequence of Captain Carter, you know, riding on the back of the Hydra Stomper and then just launching into those planes and taking them all down. And then after the last one, when she smashes, you know, the window, the window to the cockpit 
in the other uh, in the last plane, and then she does that backflip off of it and that free fall onto the back of the uh, of the Hydra Stomper armor with, of course, Steve piloting it was such a cool sequence. I don't really know what mm-hmm. else to say about it. It was just really, really cool. And I just there were so many action moments in this that I just found myself I was completely geeking out throughout this episode. Yeah, the, I, th- I love all the little touches. I especially loved w- when they have the Steve in the in the suit where they have it feels like old school. Like it's a callback to all or call forward to what Tony will have, but also how it looks like super like steampunk in there. Yeah, and. And how like, you see the reflection of, oh, it's it's so good. Uh, it's so good. So good. It is. And then, uh, so things are changing for Johann Schmidt. This story has to play out differently for him because he's already lost the Tesseract. And so we see that he has uh, he has that door, that sculpture from, uh, from Norway, and he's been studying it. And now he wants to bring forth Hydra's true champion. But it's a similar scene to uh, what we saw in Captain America, the first Avenger, where the Nazi generals come in and uh, Johann Schmidt, of course, betrays them, kills them. This time it's just one general uh, with some soldiers uh, behind him. But Johann Schmidt takes him out. We learn what his new plan is is going to be. Bring forth this monster, which you know is not going to work out so great for him, as we'll see. Um, but I, I like that in, in terms of seeing Johann Schmidt, the Red Skull in this, that just because he lost the Tesseract doesn't mean he was going to stop. You know, And you see him as a villain trying to find some other way to still ultimately win. Um, meanwhile, Steve and, and Peggy are, are chatting at a bar. She, uh, she can't get drunk, just like Steve couldn't. So another callback to the first Avenger and the way the super soldier serum uh, works. But uh, they have this moment where they're talking about how they're each, you know, Peggy says, you're my hero, and then tries to recover from that. Steve says, you're my hero too. And they're about to have their first kiss. And then Howard Stark shows up. Um, which I thought was funny. And that was also that also felt like a classic kind of Disney yeah. sort of moment, like the way the music kind of plays them out mm-hmm. with Howard, like resting his face on, on his hand or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, oh, go back to whatever you were doing. Felt uh, Disney-ish to me, not quite on the level as like the ooh from the dude who got punched, but uh, uh, that, that felt very classic a- animation for me. And then... When, uh, but there was a moment in there that I thought really got to the heart of the episode and where it is for Peggy. Because when Steve is asking what's changed for her, whether it's you know not just that she can't get drunk anymore, but what's really changed for her being Captain Carter is her talking about the way people view. It's not so much about her changing as much as it is the way people view her has changed. That she's no longer screaming to be heard, to be seen, to be in the room. She says and. I think there's something about that that speaks to her journey even before she made that choice to stay in the room that led to her becoming Captain Carter. But it really just shows that, I mean, in some ways it's that it's that commentary of that she's only really be what's changed as far as the, the way people view her is really more about the value that she's contributing. But I, I think the sad part about that is that she was always bringing value by being in the room, mm-hmm. um, but only now that she's a complete superhero and, and an icon is the world finally seeing it. But at least it gives an opportunity um, for the world to see uh, just how great uh, Captain Carter is. But we also know that that can be fleeting because the second something goes wrong, uh, Flynn goes right back to, you know, Flynn, who's now taking, who's been taking full credit for 
Captain Carter and the Hydra Stomper, uh, it won't take much for him to completely sour on the idea of, of her being a super soldier again. But Peggy just having this honest moment and this intimate conversation with Steve, uh, I, I thought was pretty wonderful in this. Yeah, this whole all the stuff between her and Steve, uh, and again Josh Keaton as as Steve Rogers, it felt it what you knew it wasn't Chris Evans, but it, it still felt so natural mm-hmm. that if it, 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 it didn't, I didn't miss a beat. Like it, for me, I I never felt like I was like oh this is so it takes me out of the story. It felt right. very natural, and I think. It, I think also the I go back to the writing. I think the writing of these two characters is so spot on and it's so fluid with these two characters that they were able to get their voices perfectly from the first Avenger that it just everything feels so natural. I think that's also helps with Josh Keaton as well. And, and with Haley Atwell also being the other person there. Yeah, there's lots of great moments of of this. And I, I loved I just love seeing more. Uh, honestly, Peggy Carter and Steve Rogers together. I think, right. you know, I, I wonder if that also is, helps with the fact that Endgame ends on those two together. And you, in knowing how much Steve, you know, went out of his way to go get in, and be with Peggy, like it just it just makes that that all those interactions even more special. So there's, I don't know, for me, it's seeing them together and interacting and one way. It's just, it's awesome. I just love it. it it's, and I think. It's really, really rad because you see online, you know, and again, online is not the the world, obviously, and everyone's opinions, but to see people gravitate towards the these characters, even in what if, like I've seen tons of people doing like fan art of those two together, mm-hmm. is really, really cool. I I thought it was awesome. I, mean, I love the fact that even what if cartoon is like getting people riled up about these two characters being together and, and showing their love for each other and their connection. It's just really cool. And again a great uh, credit to the writing, the fact that they were able to write these characters and give these great moments for such a short amount of time. So yeah, a great, great scene. I think that's a really good point because this is a a couple a romance that we've been rooting for, for such a long time. Mm -hmm. And for the most of that time, it's ill fated, right? Because things are going well in the first Avenger, but then Steve makes his sacrifice and then, we we see what happens with, of course, when they're reunited in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, of course, with Peggy suffering from having having already lived all of her life and, you know, ha- suffering from Alzheimer's and, and the fact that so many things were resetting for her. And, and Steve, you know, was kind of having a, a similar conversation with her multiple times and not really being able to build on the history that they had together and then, of course, she passes away in, in Captain America Civil War, that so much of that romance was kind of in our heads of like we wanted it to happen and we wanted these characters to have these types of moments together. And they just never got to, which is why the ending for Steve Rogers and, and Peggy Carter in Avengers Endgame is so fulfilling as an audience member because you just this was the light you finally get to see that they in some way, in some timeline, some reality, whatever, they got to have the life together that we always wanted for each of them to, to be able to have with one another. And with this one, with what if it just reminds it's a reminder of why we wanted that because this romance is just these two characters in so many ways just feel destined to be together because so much of their romance still holds true and still feel and their connection. It endures. It's one of the things that doesn't really change at all in this version of the story. Yes, it's Peggy as the super soldier, and so much uh, of the circumstances 
are, are very different. But what's maybe as similar, besides Peggy Carter just being as amazing as she's always been, what's also as similar in this timeline as in any other that we've seen in the MCU is the connection between these two characters. And I think as an audience, we just enjoy seeing them together and we just relish having these moments and, and watching these two characters falling in love with each other. And it's just great to see a, another version of that. Um, but uh, even though it is in a completely different, uh, or not completely different, even though so much is is different, um, there's a, a part of this that feels, there's so much, the romance between the two of them feels exactly like it did 10 years ago. And I think that's just why we enjoy reliving these moments in, in a different way in this episode. Uh, but as we know, uh, so much of their romance is uh, is indeed ill-fated. And we see another example of that in the next scene, which calls back to the train sequence in Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, but very different in this. They're not, uh, this is this is about capturing the Red Skull. It's not about getting Zola. Remember, Zola was captured when Captain Carter originally got the Tesseract. So it's time for Operation Where Eagles Dare. And I love that Bucky has the initial hesitation about this, like when she's saying that this is the mission that could end the war and, and all that. And Bucky's saying, you know, heard that story before. It smells like three-day-old fish or whatever. Mm. But Bucky's hesitation in that moment, because in another timeline, we know what happens to him. And they call back to that in a more specific way. Like when he almost falls when they first land on the train, he even says, like, thanks you to Captain Carter. Thanks, you almost ripped my arm off. Uh, so... Uh, I, I and but I'm also wondering how does this work in this timeline now and this goes forward because if Bucky doesn't fall here, then and his arm doesn't get ripped off, he doesn't become the he doesn't become the Winter Soldier. Does somebody else become the Winter Soldier? I don't know. I guess we'll mm. have to see. Um, but that callback I I, I thought that was, was great. great. Uh, yeah. But also the way the scene goes, like uh, with Steve Rogers going showing up as a Hydra stopper, you know, slowing down the train and then boarding it just to see that. You know, you got to call Admiral Akbar because it's a trap and the whole thing blows up. Just, I don't know. I That sequence, I mean, it wasn't a, a massive sequence, but it just, it shows to, you know, the tragic nature of the romance between Peggy and Steve. Uh, mm -hmm. Not that every, not that we always love seeing that part of it. We like seeing the happier part of their romance. But that, as well as the callbacks for Bucky and his hesitation, just within the broader, you know, perspective of the MCU and everything that happened in the timeline that we're familiar with, I thought was really cool. Yeah, and I I think that you had to have a tragedy on a train at some point, right? To kind of move mm -hmm. that to the next logical step. And and I love the fact that it's not Bucky. There's a callback. The callback was great. I didn't get it the first time. The second time, I went, oh, okay, all right, that's that's pretty cool. Um, but no, the fact that you have that tragedy on the train and driving, you know, Peggy is a uh, you need that. And mm -hmm. I love the fact that it's still consistent with the first Avenger in that way. So. Yeah, it was a great mo. Again, another great. The animation looks really great there too. I thought it was really cool with the Hydra Stomper and and the train sequence, and then the callbacks of them floating you know, on onto the train or whatever. It was really cool. Yeah, and then what I also liked about it is what it says about the Red Skull and his response, right? Because this is a more mm -hmm. aggressive move than we saw from the Red Skull in Captain America: The First Avenger, but I think he's responding more aggressively because of Peggy, and I think mm -hmm. it's because Johann Schmidt was underestimating Steve Rogers in Captain America, the first Avenger, but he was not making the mistake at all of underestimating True. Peggy Carter. I mean, I know part of it was to get the Hydra Stomper uh, armor in the first place or to get the Tesseract back, 
but also it's a very aggressive move, which I, I think speaks to the Red Skull appropriately assessing, you know, the the risk that Captain Carter posed to him in his entire operation and his plan. And that's a reasonable response from the Red Skull because she's already taken something from him. She's already taken the Tesseract from Johann Schmidt, which is something that Steve Rogers hadn't done until, well, and Steve Rogers actually never takes the Tesseract really from the Red Skull so much as, uh, so much as what really happens is, of course, you know, he picks it up and gets transported to Vormir and then the Tesseract just falls down. So it's a very different response from a, a different level. Uh, it's an escalated response from Red Skull that makes sense based on uh, and speaks to the damage that Captain Carter has done to him. And then uh, to get things moving from this spot towards the the climax of the episode, there was a great beat there where you know, Peggy went to interrogate Zola and he does the whole, I won't, t- I'll tell you nothing. And then it cuts to, he told me everything. Um, and she gets a great moment there as they're discussing the plan to go get uh, to go get the the tesseract back to stop uh, Johann Schmidt from his plan to bring an interdimensional being into our world uh, and have it being hell bent on destruction. They, as they're making that plan, you have Flynn objecting, and Peggy is finally able to clap back at him and finally be the one to tell him that uh, you know, Colonel, you're lucky to even be in the room. Like you have no place here. Get out. You're a buffoon. Um, so Captain Carter being able to finally give uh, Flynn that type of comment that he deserved uh, was was very satisfying. Yeah, I, I, I think that this whole part of, of, of them at the very end is is a great lead up. And I love the fact that uh, Zola is, you know, I will tell you anything. She told me everything. Yep. I love how <laughs> cut is so perfect. Oh, my God. It's, yep. it's great. It makes it makes total sense. It does. So now it's time to go to the Hydra compound and uh, battle Red Skull and, and whatever he's bringing through with a te- with a, a portal from the Tesseract. So it's Captain Carter and the Howling Commandos invading. And there's a great moment where Captain Carter is like beating up a bunch of guys and the, like the last guy to kind of fall down gets kicked one more time into the wall, uh, which was brutal yet very fun. Um, and we see Red Skull is using the Tesseract that he's recovered from the Hydra Stomper to open up a portal uh, Steve is still alive, but the armor in inside the armor, but it has no power source. Uh, the champion of Hydra comes through the portal. I know uh, a lot of people have been speculating since the trailer. Is this Shuma Gorath? Uh, Shuma Gorath? I don't know. Maybe kind of looks like that, but it's hard to tell because I don't know if we see enough of it. But yeah, a giant tentacle monster with some sharp teeth. You know that that tracks with that character, but also. Given that Hydra has, you know, tentacles in their logo, it, it does. It could also just be a generic Hydra monster. I guess we'll we'll see mm. if we find out more about uh, whatever Peggy was fighting there. But uh, it was what well, was a really impactful moment. Unfortunately for Red Skull, uh, was seeing this champion of Hydra immediately kill him. Um, so there's no uh, there's no transportation to Vormir or anything like that. Uh, Red Skull bit off more than he could chew and seeing the Hydra monster and and it was a really great little horror moment within that like the way it gra- the way it grabs him in the scream as he feels mm. like he's about to be crushed and then of course he is uh, did a really good job of all of a sudden turning this World War Two uh, you know period adventure uh, episode into just a, a tiny little it, it really escalated you bring in a monster so you put in a monster movie touch like that I thought was great. 
yeah, the, the when the when the squid thing comes through, I I was wondering to myself, I'm like, okay, I, I again, I I know a lot about Marvel in in the comics, but I don't know every deep cut. Obviously, I'm I'm not like I don't study it for you know every second of my life. It's just hard. But I was thinking, I'm like, okay, is this an Easter egg of a of a comic like a la obviously the the Loki series with the as Agaloth, whatever his name is, the, oh, Eliath. the purple. Eliath, Agaloth, I almost said that. Um, Eliath. That's that okay, we'll go with Agaloth, I like it. Uh, I, I think Agaloth, it's good. Eliath uh, uh, in, a, it was from a 90s comic book written by Mark Runewald, you know, which I had no idea that has like, you know, Thunderstrike, War Machine, and US Agent in it. It's like, what the hell, you know? So I was thinking to myself, it's probably some like deep cut they you know, went and found, which again, I appreciate. And then I was watching with my buddy and he, he brought up a, a point. It probably, it probably isn't this, but I thought it might be. He goes, oh, I like the Watchmen reference. I went, huh? Yeah, you could, it could be a Watchmen, like kind of an Easter egg, kind of a nod. Cause it's from a portal squid. Yeah. Squid like yeah. creature. I was it like, tracks. Oh. it tracks. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I would, I don't know if they'll ever admit that, but I think it's, it's possible. Well, so, it, you know, it may be an intentional reference. It may not be, you know, but yeah, it, but it it's certainly could be just based on yeah. yeah, portal and squid. That's, that's the end of Watchmen. Yeah. This was, I love this kind of stuff because I, I, this is the kind of thing that I wish we had more in these MCU films. And again, I think with the Eliath is a great example of what you can do with, with more monsters in the MCU. I just love that kind of the aspect we haven't with all the space and all the mystical things we've gotten. We haven't got too many monsters like straight up like, rah, right. you know, and, and I do like the fact of you know with Eliath, and now we have this. Eliath is Eliath is a little bit different, but kind of in the same vein. This was kind of like more of like a monster kind of a thing, and I'm like, okay, yeah, we there's lots of great monster stuff in the MC in Marvel Universe, and I think that we, we should see more of it in the MCU. And this is maybe hopefully is a uh, a sign of what we could maybe potentially getting. So hopefully that'll happen. I I, I hope so because I do love me some zombies. Yeah. There's a great there's a great woe from Howard Stark uh, when the monster crushes Red Skull because and I I feel like he's I mean, he's living in that moment in the story, obviously, but I feel like he was definitely representing the audience or certainly felt like he was representing my reaction to that. Like I was not expecting Red Skull to be taken out in such brutal fashion, which does call into question, like if this is a timeline that continues, I mean, I, I brought up the point of. In this timeline, it seems unlikely that Bucky would have been the Winter Soldier. Well, in this timeline, it's pretty clear that Red Skull is not the Stonekeeper on Vormir. So if we expand on this, who would be the Keeper of the Soul Stone on Vormir? If that's something that that even projects forward and that we get to explore in any way, I'm interested to see that. Unless, you know, Red Skull wasn't killed and like the Hydra monster just wrapped him up nice and snug and then took him to Vormir through the portal, which I kind of doubt. I think the idea there is that he was brutally crushed by yeah, this champion uh, that that he summoned. But um, we see Howard and, and Peggy, you know, coming up with their plan. And I love that Howard tries to have, you know, his super scientific, you know, pseudoscience, MCU science explanation of what he's going to do. And Peggy just spits it right back at him. Like, yeah, basically, you're just going to suck the creature back through the portal. Um, And I I love that Howard is even like a little bit miffed by that because like, hey, that's kind of his thing to be (laughs) the science guy. Um, uh, But yeah, I I love that Peggy is is right there with him, uh, not just as the superhero. But yeah, she she understands the the science of this world as well. Um, That was really, really cool. 
And then uh, seeing just the Steve coming back, of course, the Bucky and, and the Howling Commandos, they find him. The suit doesn't have the Tesseract, but it's got just enough power left to do uh, to do some good. And uh, we see, of course, Peggy and Steve are reunited. And Steve saying, did you miss me? And her saying every second was a sweet little moment between the two of them that I, I really enjoyed because that they don't necessarily get a ton of those moments over the course of their lives that we get to see as an audience. So that was just another one uh, that just felt good to see. And then uh, as things are escalating, as the compound is falling apart, Steve takes the Howling Commandos outside. Howard is still there managing the portal while Peggy is battling the monster. And when Steve comes back to try and help with that, the suit runs out of power. And there's really only one choice for Peggy to make, which is to push that thing back through the portal. And the only way that's going to happen completely is if she goes with it. And so then we have a conversation very similar to the one that Steve and Peggy had at the end of Captain America, the first Avenger, except this time it's Peggy making the sacrifice. So they're making plans for the date that will never happen. And even some of the dialogue there when, um, when she's saying like, I have to, I can end this similar to the things that Steve was saying at the end of Captain America, the first Avenger, you know, explaining that choice to, you know, make the sacrifice and, and Peggy, of course, doing that, uh, in this, that, that callback and, and that ringing so true of their, uh, of their relationship, of their romance, but also the heroism within these two characters then. And I think for, in this example though, it's Peggy and she's demonstrating that she was always every bit the hero that Steve Rogers ever was just as we always knew. I, I think we always, we already knew that as an audience, but to see it demonstrated in the sacrifice that she makes here um, while still uh, making it clear just what she's giving up, giving up her life, but also giving up the life with uh, Steve Rogers, which obviously she cared about and, and wanted to continue, but that's not, uh, that is not worth uh, missing an opportunity to save the world. Uh, and, and Peggy makes the, the ultimate sacrifice here. I mean, she comes back at the end as we see, um, but just seeing uh, Captain Carter uh, making this heroic, uh, making this heroic stand at the end of it, uh, just like Steve did uh, was was brilliant. I loved loved this part. And again, I'm gonna credit the writers for a lot that how they snuck Peggy through that portal and how they set everything up. Pretty goddamn clever. That's all I gotta say. And we'll we'll talk more about this here in a second, I think. But I just want to add, I loved all the stuff, obviously. But giving Peggy a sword, how rad was? Oh, that, that was cool. I, I mean, I mean, the fact she keeps it, I'm like, okay, like let's give her, let's let her keep the sword. Yes. Let's get, let's get this, let's keep this going. I, I love the sword. It was a cool, like it looks rad on her. I, it does. I, I thought it was a great touch. Yeah. That it was turns her into a knight. Yeah. There was, there was just something really, like really iconic about it. I thought like the way of her and the sword. And I'm like, man, like this was a, that was a good call giving her the sword. Okay. Okay. So I'm all about, I'm all about it. So I love that part, but I do want to get into, I'll, I'll let you kind of set it up, but the whole end of this episode is really, really cool, but I'll let you kind of take it away from here. Yeah. So Peggy is not on ice. She's gone through the portal and we see her reemerge with some severed tentacles. And of course, yes, the sword and the shield at the project Pegasus facility. And this is where Loki showed up at the, you know, or where he arrived on earth at the beginning of the first Avengers movie and Nick Fury is there along with Clint Barton. 
And Nick Fury tells her that it's she's been gone for about 70 years because she's wondering where Steve Rogers was. And Peggy just gets to, you know, as her consolation for having missed all this time, she gets to have her last line of the episode saying, we won the war. And that's uh, that's the end of our episode, which brings up all kinds of questions like what happened to Steve Rogers? Because we had this impression when we saw this with Steve uh, coming out of the ice and waking up at the end of First Avenger that, oh, Peggy's just gone now. Well, is that true? That wasn't true of Peggy. She wasn't just gone. She was still around. So if Peggy was still around in the main timeline, then maybe Steve is still around in this timeline. So are we going to see old man Steve anywhere? Um, that was something that uh, that came to mind for me. Um, but also, this feels like setting up a different Avengers team. I mean, you go through, mm-hmm. the, even you go to the title of the episode, what if Captain Carter were the first Avenger? Well, the first Avenger implies that there are more Avengers on the way. So I think that, yes, this definitely sets up more adventures with Captain Carter on the way this season, potentially in future seasons. Um, that Yeah, Nick Fury is, is going to be building uh, a different team. Uh, that and, and it really shows that, I think going back to that whole idea of a nexus event, right, of a timeline that that completely diverges. If there's no TVA to prune it, then the then we do start to see more of that butterfly type of effect, mm-hmm. where things completely branch off in uh, in infinite directions. Well, in this timeline that we're seeing with this version with Captain Carter, uh, yeah, yeah, this sets up uh, quite possibly a, a different Avenger squad, which I think the trailers to What If have have kind of teased. But I, I also think, you know, now seeing it in action within the actual story and this setup uh, was it, it's it's way more fun when you're seeing it in real time as opposed to just trying to piece together little bits from a trailer. Ma'am, please drop the sword. <laughs> yep. Which, oh, again, put I, down the spear. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I lost it. Yep. I lost it. I'm like, oh, thank God. Because I always love that part in yep. Avengers. So drop the spear. Yep. Uh, this this is very clever because. I I don't know if this this was a plan, Sean, as far as Captain Carter showing up eventually in live action. But I I'm kind of through this and what how they did this. I started thinking why they how they they brought her into the become the first Avenger and become a part of the Avengers, right? Like how Steve was or whatever in that timeline. It maybe also started thinking it was clever because. You know, in this, if he would have had her stay back in the 40s, I mean, I'm sure she wouldn't age slowly, but she still would have aged in, in at some point and as you go in the future. So if they ever wanted to bring her back into, you know, the whatever universe they want to do, which I'll get to that in a second, that they'd have to go back in the 40s. And I, I don't know if they would want to do that. They, there's a lot more flexibility by pushing her into the future. And have her be an Avenger already and have experiences and maybe introduce other Avengers, new and different Avengers through that, which you kind of already hinted at a little bit. I think that that was very, again, very, very clever instead of putting on an ice, getting her through a different way to get to the future and not age was perfect. And I love that. I thought I was just super, super clever and awesome. And I definitely feel that that's a way for them to really show that this character is going to be coming back at some point. And obviously animation, I think is, is a given. I think you're going to see Captain Carter again, but I'm, I'm kind of setting up this idea with, with all the what if stuff that we might be getting 
there's going to be some kind of, you know, secret war, but I think it's going to be tied to the multiverse more than it's going to be tied to kind of a law, a little bit of what Hickman did, but it definitely felt to me like setting up Captain Carter as a character, establishing her as a, as a character, seeing the reaction online for the most part. Again, I just, I've only seen po- really positive things and a lot, and a lot of traction, just things that I've seen. It started making me think, man, I really do think we're going to get some kind of multiverse secret war. And I would not be shocked if she shows up, like it becomes a major character that is in this multiverse war or whatever. Um, and just the fact you set up the fact that she is in this new team of Avengers that, you know, they, they show up and I love Hawkeye when she shows up and goes, sure, it's Captain Carter. Like she's mm-hmm. a legend already, just like right. Captain America. So I love that this I just feel that they're definitely setting something up and not every episode is going to be, I think just you're going to set up another thing. A lot of it's going to be fun, but this one particularly just feels like they're setting something up with this character specifically. There's just something there. I, again, I could be wrong and if I'm wrong, whatever, but it feels there's something there, Sean. And I feel like she, that this character is coming back in both animation and I kind of feel that she's going to come back in the, the live action. I think we're going to see a Steve, a, a first Avenger Steve and a first Avenger Peggy Carter together at some point. I think it's going to happen. I just, I feel it. I feel it. Animation is definitely a given for this character. Yes. I mean, we know that we've seen her and there's trailers that show other footage of her. So this is not the, this is not even the end of her for this season. I know like the creatives were teasing, Oh, this is a character that could live on in, in future seasons. Sure. That's true. But this is not the last we're going to see of her over the next several weeks. She will be back. And I, I think it's definitely setting things up within this timeline and this season of, of what if to have another team. You know, there was an idea whether, well, there's still an idea of having heroes and, and having the Avengers. So that's still part of it. And that's going to factor into this somehow. But I think you're right in that. There's also an opportunity that's been created here for this character to this version of the character to carry mm-hmm. forward in live action. I, I definitely want to see Haley Atwell in that costume and being Captain Carter. And that's not to it's not to say animation isn't enough. Like animation is great sure. and I love it. And I, and I love I could not have loved this episode any more than I do. But so it's not so much I, I need it because the animation isn't uh, isn't sufficient. It's not that at all. It's just. I'll take as much of, of Captain Carter as I can get in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or multiverse and to see Haley Atwell in that suit. I mean, it's great hearing her voice and you know seeing the animation where it's looking like her, but to see Haley Atwell herself in that costume wielding that shield and the sword uh, would be amazing. And I think it certainly creates those opportunities now with Loki and and the expanding multiverse within the MCU. I would love to have an opportunity to see it. And there's so many ways that that could happen. I mean, would I watch a a live action Captain Carter movie? Definitely. But there's also a lot of other ways that this character could pop up. I mean, there's a number of movies that are exploring the multiverse where this could happen. You could even have Haley Atwell as Captain Carter in Loki season two as a way of having this character in live action. Uh, That would be really awesome. And and I think the the bigger point for me on that as far as something from what if making it into the live action movies or series is I, I certainly think that the storytelling just based on this episode and the two that follow it, and I expect the trend to continue, the storytelling, the character work, it's all 
on the same for me anyway it's all on a quality level that is on par with what we've come to expect from Marvel Studios in live action i certainly think that that means that these characters and these stories they're all fair game so what ha- what happens in what if has an opportunity to be carried forward in some way not just in subsequent episodes of what if but also and not just in subsequent animated series from Marvel Studios but it's fair game for live action and I think a lot of the audience would be with that. I think a lot of the audience would be familiar with what happened in the animated series and be able to kind of be on for be along for the ride with that. And the people who maybe haven't seen the animated shows, they're still not going to have any problem buying into the idea of Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter, as Captain Carter, uh, because she, of course, has every ability and more uh, to be able to sell that because this was all so great. But uh, mm-hmm. You you were right, Paul, to you know compliment the the writing on this. AC Bradley, who wrote this episode, the head writer for the series, um, this was uh, pretty much perfect for me. Um, I, there's I as I said before, no notes on this episode of yeah. uh, of What If. Uh, it was so awesome. It was a big adventure that was thoroughly entertaining, and it just gave us everything we already loved about Peggy Carter. But now on a bigger stage, maybe not a bigger stage as far as box office and movies and stuff like that, or the literal screen size, but bigger stage in terms of being a full-fledged superhero that we got to see in this. Uh, She was always a hero, but now being able to see that in this episode and where Peggy Carter gets to show us that, uh, she shows shows her heroism all over again, but in this big, bold, uh, thrilling new way that I, I just could not have enjoyed anymore. Yeah. This episode, I think, is a great just kind of setup for what this series is. And, and again, what the comic books have, have done for years and have been so much fun to read. And I, I got to say really quickly, too, uh, we talked about briefly Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Wright as a watcher. Uh, I I thought it was very interesting. We've already seen the watchers in Guardians of the Galaxy uh, Volume 2. But uh, what, the way they presented him in this show, it, he looks it looks like it looks like eternity. And I'm not sure if it's because they're just trying to like get, make it more mysterious or mm. if they are literally combining the Watcher and, e- and Eternity together, which I thought was interesting. So I'm like, wait, because the way Eternity obviously is the Steve Ditko, like massive, like godlike, you know, infinite being. Mm-hmm. And the Watcher is obviously one of the things we saw that Stan Lee's cameos involved in in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And. I'm just kind of like, huh, I wonder if they're going to make the the Eternity and Watcher the same character in the MCU. Just, I, I just food for thought. I, the way the way they showed them is, is very much it's like the outline of the Watcher is the same, but it's it's like all like inside like like Eternity's design is interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the series is great. Uh, I thought Jeffrey Wright did a great job narration wise and. It's just it, it's, again, a lot of fun for a short amount of time. And I, I feel if, if this is a great example of what they're going to be doing for every series and every episode, I can't wait. I really can't wait. Well, even the opening, like his whole time, oh, it's yeah. a prism, endless possibility, whatever. Like it's like, OK, this is also, you know, this is Marvel Studios. What if like the what if comics? But this is also Marvel's Twilight Zone. And that's totally right. what it felt like uh, with the the opening to the series. I hadn't thought about that, but the. The visual tracks, though, of like that, there is some overlap there between the Watcher and Eternity because we don't normally see the Watcher like that in the comic books. He looks more no. like a physical being that's there, like could be standing in front of you. Where mm-hmm. this one feels 
uh, yeah, like it's, you know, blending in with space. <laughs> like it, it's just, it's a very different sort of uh, visual context for that character. I've just had in my head that this is like Uatu, the the, the watcher, because there's multiple watchers in the comic books. Right, right. But, you know, Uatu was the one Marvel Studios couldn't have until the Fox deal. But I don't think he named himself Uatu in this. He just calls he himself the, yeah, the watcher. Um, that's an interesting thought. I, I hadn't uh, considered that. But what also was interesting to me was that as the Watcher, normally I, I don't, I, I'm trying to remember if it's like this in the comic books or not. I I don't remember Watchers being able to like see the entire multiverse. Like they would see the stuff in whatever universe or timeline they're in, I would think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about that, Paul, but like that felt different to me in that this guy is the Watcher and he's seeing every timeline. Um, I, I thought was might be a slightly different application of which I think is exciting though. I, I do think that if you're gonna have the multiverse with infinite timelines, it helps to have something or someone at the very center of it. And you know, maybe on on one side there's you know Kang at the center of this, but also having the mm-hmm. watcher being able to see if you have endless possibilities and you have a character who can see every single one of them and of course tell us about it with the watcher i think that's a really exciting idea as well yeah i, I always thought it was something along those lines in the comics it, it, i don't think he's at least the at least from what i remember i don't remember him saying like i see every infinite possibility but yeah. he just says I, I i know these different timelines what i think is going to be interesting is they emphasize and I, I don't think it's an accident that i cannot interfere yep i think that instead of having Galactus be the, what he is the one that is trying to save the earth from and, and joins fantastic four. I think the fact that you're bringing what if, and he says, I can't interfere, but I can see all these timelines are together that I think he might be helping the Avengers stop Kang. I think that might be where he is. He doesn't interfere, but he assists. He always, he touches, he, he, like in the comic books, kind of dances that line. He can't interfere you know, and stop right. anybody, but he can help them. And that's the difference. And so that's where he'll kind of say, like, well, I can't interfere, but I can help you get to where you need to do where you you can go. So that's where I think we're, we're going to get a setup of uh, the Watcher himself or itself, excuse me. And we're going to see that develop through the series. But then I think we're going to see him or whatever them show up. Uh, later on in the, in the films and help out with Kang. I think that's definitely where they're going to go with instead of with Galactus, they'll use it with Kang, which makes a lot of sense considering with the multiverse and all that. Yeah, I think the the whole thing of the Watcher kind of towing that line of I, I cannot interfere, I will not interfere. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. same thing as the comic books, but maybe, and, and that's actually where Uatu kind of stands out compared to other Watchers in the comic books is Uatu is kind of the rule breaker among the watchers because he skirts that line where it's like well i i technically didn't interfere yeah but you still did uh so it's like you find a way to make peace with the idea that that you're interfering but not in such a way that that you feel breaks your rule um but yeah certainly they're pointing towards something different with the watcher he he comes across a little more like omniscient in in this um comes across he's he's almost uh, he is almost a godlike sort of figure in this in some ways which is a little bit different than the comic books where the watcher is the watcher is a physical being who can be killed um, and, and is mm-hmm. killed uh, in the comic books. Spoiler alert, but everybody's been killed in comic books. So um, it, it definitely feels like a different approach to this character. I mean, certainly a lot of things that ring true of the idea of this character, 
but a different application within the MCU. And I I agree. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see this character pop up in live action. And I, and I don't know how he would be treated. I don't know if he would be a bigger CG type of figure to kind of have the, a, a similar space to what we see of him in a similar look and feel to what we see in the What If animated series. Or maybe it would just be Jeffrey Wright, you know, taking a physical form to play this character. And I'm all about seeing Jeffrey Wright as this character. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, happy to hear him, but also would be happy to see him as well. But this could be a character who really could uh, play a large role in the MCU. I mean, he's already uh, I'm already having enough fun with him as the narrator of this animated series. But he could take on an even bigger role than that, even in live action projects as well. But Overall, uh, this was such a great first episode uh, of What If, such an exciting debut for this series that was eagerly anticipated, but I I think just went beyond anything uh, I would have expected or hoped for in the series. I was just so thrilled by everything I saw in this half-hour story. and was really happy that it was a half-hour story. I mean, we haven't really talked about the length of the episode yet, because normally I I find conversations about runtime boring, but I like that these are like true half-hour episodes telling complete stories as opposed to, you know, little 10 to 15-minute shorts that are right. kind of building to something. There's interconnectivity, but you have an, uh, a completely individually satisfying episode in What If Captain Carter Were the First Avenger. So uh, what I do know is one answer for sure to the question of What If Captain Carter Were the First Avenger is that it would be awesome because this totally was. Yes. Uh, And that is where we will wrap up this edition of the MCU Fan Show. Thank you to What If for keeping it to a half hour and allowing our podcast to stay under two hours. That's nice. That's rare (laughs) these days. Uh, Um, But thank you to all of you who listen to this um, and make sure you're following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Exclusive podcasts available at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. That's S-E-A-N-G-E-R-B-E-R. Or just hit the link in the show notes, including a Patreon credit scene where we're about to talk about a trailer for Venom, Let There Be Carnage. So you can uh, check that out over there. Paul, where can everybody find you? Or actually, before you say it, I'll say it. Go to the Comic Binge YouTube channel because we did a spoiler Uh review of The Suicide Squad, which hopefully you've seen it. Uh, It's a really, really good movie. And we had a lot of fun talking about it because Paul was kind enough to invite me on. So it was a little MMM reunion of uh, with Chris Clow as well. Uh, so we had a lot of fun talking about the movie. Make sure you go check that out over at the Comic Binge YouTube channel. Paul, tell them all the other stuff. Well, thank you for joining me, by the way. We it was a lot of fun. Like we, I didn't even get to like half the things we, we wanted to talk about because we just uh, it was almost two hours even. Oh, it's crazy. It was a great time though. It was felt old school. It was great to talk about something like we, we both love with these comic book adaptations and everything. So, yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. And you can follow me on Twitter at Herman 22 with two ends. Uh, the comic binge is on Instagram. It's on you or YouTube, obviously. Uh, TikTok. It's on Twitter. Just go go search them. They're on there. And uh, again, thank you for uh, everyone who subscribed and liked the videos. I really appreciate your support. And I got a great uh, new video up right now for an independent comic called The Atonement Bell. Uh, a Kickstarter just started this this week, actually. And the book, I've seen some, I, I show some pictures in the, in the video, uh, interview the writer. Awesome guy. Awesome comic. Looks great. Go support it. Uh, it's almost halfway funded already. But please go out there, just throw a couple bucks at it just to support, you know, independent art. It's awesome. And uh, yeah, and go check it out. 
And if you want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening to MCU Fan Show. We'll see you next week.